As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to DRI's podcast series titled Wingtips, brought to you by the DRI Aviation Law Committee, where in each episode, we talk to DRI members and other notable guests about the practice of aviation law and emerging topics in aviation. I am your host for this episode, Cami Brown of Ray, Quinney, and Nebuchadnezzar in Salt Lake City, Utah. Our guest for this episode is Denny Shoup, who is a partner at Schneider in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Denny has been a member of his firm's executive committee, chair of the firm's litigation department, aviation and product liability groups. He is a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers, a member of the IADC, and one of the leading aviation and products lawyers in the United States. A retired Air Force Command and instructor pilot, Denny served 23 years as an active duty and reserve officer. Most importantly, he's a terrific human being and a wonderful mentor. Denny, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show. Tammy, thank you very much uh, for being here. I really, really look forward to speaking with you today. Denny, will you give us a brief sketch of your career? How did you decide to go from being an Air Force pilot to an aviation lawyer? It's so interesting. And it was uh, it was not an easy decision. I had uh, entered the academy, Air Force Academy, in 1972, and graduated in '76. And while I was there, I had taken some uh, legal courses, and just a couple of them. And turned out I had done pretty well in them, and had an affinity for it. And then I just forgot about it and, and moved on with my Air Force career. Um, and, and when I got married, the decision was made that uh, we would leave active duty. And I would move into a civilian career after my initial commitment was over. So I was just trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And uh, we decided after going through a number of uh, options that, well, maybe I would go to law school and just kind of try it out and, and see what we think. And I, I didn't know if I would get in. I applied. I was fortunate to get into a variety of law schools. Uh, we decided that I would go to the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And I, I still wasn't sure. I went one semester and said, well, let me see how I do if I flunk out or how I do. And I went one semester and I was still there. And I said, okay, let me go one more. I went another semester, did okay. Um, still wasn't sure about, uh, you know, is this really what I want to do? So I went back and I flew in the Air Force Reserve all summer uh, uh, in, in airplanes. And I came back from my second year of law school and the uh, dean called me in and said, you know, what are you doing? 
I said, what do you mean? He goes, are you going to be a lawyer or not? I go, well, I just don't know if I want to do that. So he goes, well, you really should do maybe a summer associate position. So I ended up doing that and uh, decided I would go ahead and finish law school and, and then just kind of see what would happen from there. Um, and eventually um, applied to a lot of law firms, didn't really see any that I liked other than the one I'm with right now, Schneider. It was a very special place, really interesting people, people who were bright, capable, but committed to doing the right thing in life, which meant a lot to me. And we, I worked together with uh, the individual who became my mentor, Ralph Wellington, who's just a super attorney and even a more superhuman being. And we worked together to develop an aviation practice and kind of led me to where I am today. Very long-winded answer, but that's, uh, that's kind of how I got here. Oh, that's wonderful. How many years has it been since you've been there? Well, I uh, graduated from uh, law school in, in 89. So I've been in, uh, in the practice of law at Schneider since 1989. Wow, that's fantastic. What types of cases are you working on right now? Yeah, our team is fortunate to work on a real wide variety of cases, you know, airline cases, uh, products cases, commercial cases, operator cases. I personally am working on a pretty wide variety of both military and civilian accident cases. I have uh, two cases that are involving Army Special Operations helicopters that crashed in the United States. I have uh, an active case going about a, a civilian helicopter that crashed in Canada and also a military contractor helicopter that crashed in Afghanistan. So those are two very busy cases. I've got a medevac helicopter crash case that took place in Delaware. Uh, one of my more interesting cases, it's a series of cases right now, involves a B-17 crash in Connecticut in 2019, which received a lot of national publicity. And I'm also involved in defending uh, uh, one of our clients in the crash of a Virginia State Police helicopter that took place during the Charlottesville, Virginia protest back in 2017. And beyond that, we have two very high profile appeals going, one in the Second Circuit involving federal preemption and governor contract, government contractor defense issues, and an appeal in the Fourth Circuit dealing with personal jurisdiction issues in aviation. So a wide variety of things. Um, we just, we, we love representing clients in the aviation industry and we're really blessed to have such a wide variety of cases uh, to participate in. Well, that's outstanding. What would you consider your biggest legal win? I know you've had a lot over the years. You know, ironically, probably in some ways, the case that I keep coming back to, and if I could ask that question, is the very first case I had was a significant case where I was first trial attorney. It was a commercial litigation that I tried in Miami, Florida in 2002 with my law partner, John Stern, who anyone who knows John knows what just a fabulous trial attorney he is. Um, it's a quiet technology DC-8 versus Huel, Harel Dubois was the name of the case. And it involves some really sophisticated, uh, both legal and technical issues. It involved modifications to thrust reversers that were part of hush kits that were installed on JT3D engines so they could comply with federal noise requirements. Uh, the case itself dealt with airflows through the engine. We had to deal with complex engineering, uh, speeds of airflows. We actually had to do computational fluid dynamics analysis, which was a real challenge with the computer capability that was available at that time. 
We had a number of Daubert challenges, highly sophisticated challenges. And perhaps most important to me, it was bet the company litigation. It was a company from Manchester in the United Kingdom that was involved. And if they had lost the case, they were done. So it was, uh, you know, a lot of extra, you know, importance. Our, all of our cases are important, but it just felt like an extra importance to do a good job defending them. And John and I were successful. We got a defense verdict. Um, there were many tens of millions of dollars involved, and we actually got a substantial counterclaim on our behalf. And after the case, the National Law Journal picked the win as the national defense win of the month uh, that year. So that was pretty exciting. Oh, that's really, that's really cool. Was it a, a jury verdict? It was a jury verdict. It, it, one of the interesting things was initially the jury uh, did not uh, come back. They were split 11-1. And we didn't know for sure who that one was for. The plaintiffs are pretty confident that the, uh, the holdout, you know, they were gonna, they could get by the holdout, they would win. We thought that we were in a good position. We elected to take a non-unanimous jury verdict. We took 11-1 verdict and we won. And it was really exciting. That is awesome. Tell us about the general trans service case that you recently brought to a unanimous defense verdict after only an hour and a half of jury deliberation. I understand that this case arose from an accident at the Philadelphia International Airport when a ground support equipment mechanic fell from a refueling truck that he was working on. Yeah, this was really a, an exciting case and a, and a challenging case. It was in the Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas which uh, many who will be listening will know is year after year listed as one of the judicial hell holes in the United States for defendants. And um, so it was difficult because you're pretty much gonna have to go to trial to uh, prevail in the case. Um, I tried this case with one of my outstanding young colleagues, Lee Schmier, who is uh, an Air Force Reserve pilot. He flies in the same Air Force Reserve squadron that I flew in but he flies C-17s and he's still an active C-17 pilot. Um, in fact, he was out yesterday flying a C-17 mission for our country. Uh, Lee and I split the fact and the expert witnesses 50-50. Uh, um, he grew tremendously during the trial from the beginning to the end. You just don't get too many opportunities to do this. And he just did a great job. Uh, the case involved a mechanic who had fallen from a modular fuel truck. He was climbing onto the fuel module to do some adjustments and he was stepping down from the module and he was using a step stool when he was stepping down and he fell. He could not recall how it was that he fell, exactly what happened. Um, so we had a lot of testimony about what may have happened. We had a lot of very uh, sophisticated design testimony. The plaintiffs uh, alleged that there should have been either steps or some sort of ladder built into the fuel module. We were able to demonstrate to the jury that that was not practical and, and couldn't have been done and was unnecessary to be done. We had very substantial damages, uh, both physical and allegations of traumatic brain injury. Um, and it was just one that you know, we felt very good about. And the jury agreed with us that there was no design defect, that our client had done everything that it, it could have and should have done on the product. So it was very rewarding in such a challenging uh, environment to get a, a defense verdict. But uh, I, I, I believe in our system. Were there any witnesses to that accident that were called at trial? There was only one person who had seen a little bit of it, one of the coworkers. But he, he himself had not actually seen what had happened. 
So basically, we didn't have a clear eyewitness. We didn't have videotape. We didn't have anything like that. Um, I had I had a the step stool in, in the uh, in the jury room. I had ladders. We were climbing up and down things all the time, right in front of the jury, and um, they understood. They got it, and they did the right thing. That's a great way to bring to bring it right in front of the jury, so they can understand what you were dealing with. I'd like to do that. I had a case years ago where we actually uh, cut an air, we cut the wings and the tail section off an aircraft and brought it into the courtroom and had it in the courtroom the entire time. Um, and our opposing counsel had a, an aircraft that was out on the mall outside the uh, courtroom. And it was just great for them. The jury was looking at it all the time. You could refer to it. And I think you show a level of confidence. You say, this is it. Here it is. I'm not afraid of this. This is the product. And I'm going to show you why it's not defective. That's wonderful. I, I think it really makes everything much more relatable to a jury when they can see those products and become familiar with it themselves. And it doesn't seem like such a complicated and, and you know, a mystery to the jurors. I think that's a great way to, to, to get good defense wins. And as you know, it's so important that, that you as the attorney are comfortable with the product. You learn about the product, you, you touch it, you handle it, you understand it, and then you look for every opportunity at trial for the jury to do the same thing. Denny, you've had so many wins throughout your career. Can you think of a time when you did not win? And what did you learn from that experience? I know a lot of times when we don't win, we learn. You know, Cammie, the, the one I'm going to point to is actually before I became a lawyer, if, if that's okay. Um, when I was in early pilot training at the Air Force Academy, um, I struggled. And I struggled because I had air sickness problems. And I just wasn't sure I would ever be able to get over this. I mean, I got through the training, but I wasn't very good at it because I wasn't feeling well. Um, and then when I graduated from the academy, I initially chose not to be a pilot. I was a uh, scientist for a few years, uh, doing very exciting work, uh, developing uh, computer software to simulate air-to-air -air and air-to-ground combat in Korea and in uh, Europe and what was then the Folder Gap region. Um, but ultimately, I decided that... Um, I was, I was avoiding something because I might fail. And a lot of us at this position in our lives, we haven't failed in a whole lot. And the only thing I'd failed at at that point was I couldn't hit a curveball. You know, and it, peace ball was really important to me and I just couldn't hit the curveball as well as I wanted to. But, but as a practical matter, I hadn't really failed at anything. And I decided that, you know, if I don't try to go back and do it, I'll never find out. And if I avoid this, what will I avoid next time if I'm afraid to fail? So I went back. I was fortunate to get back into pilot training. I struggled in the beginning with air sickness, but I got through it and ultimately did uh, pretty well and was invited back to be an instructor pilot in the squadron that I came from. Um, and then when I came back as an instructor pilot, ultimately I was recognized as a master instructor of flight training. So I was able to overcome it. And to me, that's very important. It's a lesson that I tell people all the time. And I I told my children when they were growing up, uh, when they perhaps were reluctant to do something that they didn't think they could do, I said, you got to try. And it's okay to fail. Failing isn't part of life and learning from that. So I think that's what I learned from. And then I apply it in my legal career as well and in my own and with my colleagues that you've got to be willing to push yourself. If you always stay in your comfort zone, you'll never get where you can be and where you need to be. So you, you can't be afraid of not succeeding. It's okay not to succeed all the time. If you do your best, you learn from it and you do better next time. 
What a great lesson. Danny, what do you think makes a good leader in law and in life? You've had a lot of leadership positions over the years. Well, the folks who work with me know that it comes, that they hear two words from me all the time. And those two words are servant leadership. Um, for those who are not familiar with, with the phrase servant leadership, it's when a person's or a leader's main goal and responsibility is to provide service to the women and men who work for you. Um, it's different from really a traditional leadership approach where you the leader's main focus may be on the uh, thriving of the company or the organization. As a servant leader, what you do is you, you focus on the needs of your people, what they need either professionally or making sure that uh, they have what they need in their personal lives to, to succeed. You take care of your people. And if you take care of your people, they then will take care of you and the mission if you provide the proper leadership. So servant leadership to me is the key. It's what I learned in the military. It's what I uh, developed. I used at the academy when I was a squadron commander. I used in my positions in the military and I've used in my legal positions. Um, I do the best I can to look out for my people and know what they need. Speaking of leadership, I understand that you were recently selected as the president of the Penn Law Veterans Alumni Association at the law school. Tell us about that. That was, uh, it, it's really neat. Um, I've worked with the veterans at the law school for many years. The, uh, there's a, a veterans law group at the University of Pennsylvania Law School that I've worked with and mentored and, and spoken to them for years. Um, part of that was looking back to my first days at the law school where uh, post-Vietnam, it wasn't particularly uh, a receptive environment for veterans. There were two veterans in my class at law school, me and Adrian Cronauer. And if the name is not familiar, Adrian Cronauer is who Robin Williams played in Good Morning Vietnam. So we were, uh, we were the two veterans in the class. Um, the law school now and, and, and Wharton as well are extremely supportive of veterans. And through my involvement, when it became time to put together an alumni group, uh, a lot of the veterans that I worked with over the years came forward and said they would like me to be the president. So I agreed to serve as the first president. We had our inaugural meeting recently. We are pulling together our veterans who are Penn Law graduates from around the country, and not just the veterans, but also their family members and, and those who are just interested in veterans issues. And we're working together on a variety of issues to help people with their career transitions, just to give them general advice, to let them know what the career opportunities are out there. But even more importantly, something that I did when I was at the law school, and that is to serve as a bridge of communication between those who are familiar with the military and the veterans and those who are not. We're in the process of putting together a program right now for Veterans Week at the law school where we're going to bring in speakers and we're going to spend more time just talking to each other and learning about each other. Because I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, so many of our problems could be solved, whether it's problems between people in different parts of the country who don't have similar experiences or different philosophies, that if we just talk to each other and come to understand each other, we can make great progress in dealing with difficult issues. And, and that's some of what we're trying to do. So I'm honored to be the president. I'm working with some incredible women and men who have served in the military and other leadership positions. And before too long, I'm going to step aside and we're going to take over. But it's a, it's a privilege to work with them. Such an important point. We all have our individual stories. And when we come to understand one another's stories and experiences, then we do come together. That sounds like a wonderful experience. 
You also recently served as, as a mentor for Team Malaysia in a two-day international crisis and negotiation exercise, and that was just this past March. What was that all about? Well, Penn Law has a very interesting program they started three years ago. They teamed up with the Army War College's Center for Strategic Leadership to provide an international crisis negotiation exercise for second and third year law students. Penn is the first law school in the country to do this and to host one of these exercises. Uh, usually about 70 to 80 law students are involved, so a significant number of students. And I participated all three years. The first year I was the mentor for Team USA. Uh, the second year I was the mentor for Team Brunei. And this year I was the mentor for Team Malaysia. First year we did it in person. The uh, second year we did it all remotely. And this year, this last year, we did a combination of remote and, and hybrid participation. Uh, just an incredible group of participants. We have a former US ambassador to Brunei, who's one of the participants. We have former, current and former military officers. Uh, we have a number of people from the Penn Law faculty and other academics. And it's the experience has been tremendous. I really enjoy watching the students through the three-day exercise from where they start to where they learn how to work with each other and negotiate and share information. Um, and then I really enjoy talking to them about what I've done in my career because we eventually end up spending a lot of time talking about my time in that part of the world and, and what I've done in, in other areas and, and what it's like to serve and to make the type of difficult decisions that we're talking about here. And I've made friends and relationships that, that continued after the exercise and stayed in contact with the students. So it's an incredible learning exercise. Penn has been uh, a leader in doing this and they can expect to continue to do it. And I'm expecting that other law schools in the country might start doing this as well. Denny, what advice for younger lawyers do you have who want to become skilled trial attorneys? Well, some of it's gonna pick up on uh, some of the responses I gave you earlier, Cami. Number one is do not be afraid to take reasonable risks. Um, you have to do them on an informed basis, make sure people know you're doing it, but don't be afraid to take reasonable risk. And when you make mistakes, admit them. It's important that you admit your mistakes, learn from them, and learn what you, how you go forward from them. You need to be absolutely passionate in the representation of your clients. And if you can't do it, don't do it. So you need to make sure you can be passionate in your representation. And I think finally, I would say, associate with a mentor who can guide you through the process. And it doesn't have to be just one mentor. As I mentioned, Ralph Wellington was mine, a great trial attorney, continues to be a great trial attorney. But even more importantly, he was a great human being. And he was a chairman of our firm. And he taught me how to balance the practice of law with all the other demands in your life. And most importantly, how to do the right thing. Do the right thing for your clients, for yourself, and for the, the industries that we're serving. Such great advice for younger lawyers and all of us. Okay, Denny, this is a really important question. So think about it for a minute. But what we want to know is what is Denny Shoup's favorite movie and why? Well, those who know me won't be surprised to hear that it's a baseball movie. Um, <laughs> and you might like this. It's Field of Dreams. Of course. Of course. The, uh, you know, it's the 1989 movie that Kevin Costner and James Earl Jones starred in, you know, about the farmer who built the uh, baseball field in his cornfield. 
um, you know, it then attracted the ghosts of baseball practice, including uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson. Uh, this particular farmer, it, for those who aren't familiar with the movie, had a broken relationship with his father. And his father was one of the ghosts who came back and, and played on the field. And one of my favorite parts of the movie was when the uh, farmer and his uh, father uh, went out and played catch and something they had never done uh, during uh, when his father was alive. And, uh, you know, my, my son likes this movie a lot too. And when he was married recently, one of the things they wanted to do on his wedding day was have a catch. So we did that. You've inspired me to rewatch that movie this weekend. <laughs> it's a great one. never watch it too many times. And as uh, <laughs> my family knows I'm a crier and uh, I watch the movie and tears will flow. <laughs> so you don't agree with that line? There's no crying in baseball. <laughs> I do not. There's crying in the law too, hopefully yeah, for good reasons. Right, right. Denny Shoup, thank you for your service to DRI. And more importantly, thank you for your service to our country. We really appreciate you joining us today. And thanks to all of you for listening. We ask that you rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please listen to future episodes where we'll speak with other DRI members and notable guests about aviation law topics. As a reminder, be sure to update your membership profile, renew your DRI membership, or join DRI today. Until next time, I am Cami Brown, and this is Wing Tips, brought to you by the DRI Aviation Law Committee. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.